And now, Chapter 14 of H. Ryder Haggard's King Solomon's Mines, The Last Stand of the Greys. Continued. As for the fight that followed, who can describe it? Again and again the multitudes surged up against our momentarily lessening circle, and again and again we beat them back. The stubborn spearmen still made good, the dark impenetrable wood, each stepping where his comrade stood, the instant that he fell. As someone or other beautifully puts it, it was a splendid thing to see those brave battalions come on time after time over the barriers of their dead, sometimes holding corpses before them to receive our spear thrust, only to leave their own corpses to swell the rising piles. It was a gallant sight to see that sturdy old warrior, Infidus, as cool as though he were on parade, shouting out orders, taunts, and even jests, to keep up the spirit of his few remaining men. And then, as each charge rolled up, stepping forward to wherever the fighting was thickest, to bear his share in repelling it. And yet more gallant was the vision of Sir Henry, whose ostrich plumes had been shorn off by a spear stroke, so that his long yellow hair streamed out in the breeze behind him. There he stood, the great Dane, for he was nothing else, his hands, his axe, and his armor, all red with blood, and none could live before his stroke. Time after time I saw it come sweeping down, as some great warrior ventured to give him battle, and as he struck he shouted, Ahoy! Ahoy! Like his berserker forefathers, and the blow went crashing through shield and spear, through headdress, hair, and skull, till at last none would of their own will come near the great white Tagati, who killed and failed not. But suddenly there rose a cry of Twala! E Twala! and out of the press sprang forward none other than the gigantic one-eyed king himself, also armed with battle-axe and shield, and clad in chain armor. Where art thou in Kubu, thou white man, who slew Scragga my son? See if thou canst kill me, he shouted, and at the same time hurled a tola straight at Sir Henry, who, fortunately, saw it coming, and caught it on his shield, which it transfixed, remaining wedged in the iron plate behind the hide. Then, with a cry, Twala sprang forward straight at him, and with his battle-axe struck him such a blow upon the shield, that the mere force and shock of it brought Sir Henry, strong man as he was, down upon his knees. But at the time, the matter went no further, for at that instant there rose from the regiments pressing round us something like the shout of dismay, and on looking up, I saw the cause. To the right and to the left, the plain was alive with the plumes of charging warriors. The outflanking squadrons had come to our relief. The time could not have been better chosen. All Twala's army had, as Ignosi had predicted would be the case, fixed their attention on the bloody struggle which was raging round the remnant of the greys and the buffaloes, who were now carrying on a battle of their own at a little distance, which two regiments had formed the chest of our army. It was not until the horns were about to close upon them that they had dreamed of their approach. And now, before they could even assume a proper formation for defense, the outflanking impies had leapt, like greyhounds, on their flanks. In five minutes the fate of the battle was decided. Taken on both flanks, 
and dismayed by the awful slaughter inflicted upon them by the greys and the buffaloes, Twala's regiments broke into flight, and soon the whole plain between us and the loo was scattered with groups of flying soldiers, making good their retreat. As for the forces that had so recently surrounded us and the buffaloes, they melted away as though by magic, and presently we were left standing there like a rock from which the sea has retreated. But what a sight it was! Around us the dead and the dying lay in heaped-up masses, and of the gallant greys there remained alive but ninety-five men. More than two thousand nine hundred had fallen in this one regiment, most of them never to rise again. Men, said Infidus calmly, as between the intervals of binding up a wound in his arm he surveyed what remained to him of his corps. "'Ye have kept up the reputation of your regiment, "'and this day's fighting will be spoken of by your children's children.' "'Then he turned round and shook Sir Henry Curtis by the hand. "'Thou art a great man in Kubu,' he said simply. "'I have lived a long life among warriors, "'and known many a brave one, "'yet I have never seen a man like thee.' "'At this moment,' the buffaloes began to march past our position on the road to Lou, and as they did so, a message was brought to us from Ignosi requesting Infidus, Sir Henry, and myself to join him. Accordingly, orders having been issued to the remaining ninety men of the greys to employ themselves in collecting the wounded, we joined Ignosi, who informed us that he was pressing on to Lou to complete the victory by capturing Twala, if that should be possible. Before we had gone far, we suddenly discovered the figure of Good sitting on an ant heap about one hundred paces from us. Close beside him was the body of a Kukuwana. He must be wounded, said Sir Henry anxiously. As he made the remark, an untoward thing happened. The dead body of the Kukuwana soldier, or rather what had appeared to be his dead body, suddenly sprang up, knocked Good head over heels off the ant heap, and began to spear him. We rushed forward in terror, and as we drew near, we saw the brawny warrior making dig after dig at the prostrate good, who at each prod jerked all his limbs into the air. Seeing us coming, the Kukuwana gave one final most vicious dig, and with a shout of, Take that, wizard! bolted off. Good did not move, and we concluded that our poor comrade was done for. Sadly, we came towards him and we were indeed astonished to find him pale and faint indeed, but with a serene smile upon his face, and his eyeglass still fixed in his eye. "'Capital armor, this,' he murmured, on catching sight of our faces bending over him. "'How sold he must have been!' And then he fainted. On examination, we discovered that he had been seriously wounded in the leg by a tola in the course of the pursuit, but that the chain armor had prevented his last assailant's spear from doing anything more than bruise him badly. It was a merciful escape. As nothing could be done for him at the moment, he was placed on one of the wicker shields used for the wounded and carried along with us. On arriving before the nearest gate of Lou, we found one of our regiments watching it in obedience to orders received from Ignosi. The remaining regiments were in the same way watching the other exits to the town. The officer in command of this regiment coming up saluted Ignosi as king, 
and informed him that Twala's army had taken refuge in the town, whither Twala himself had also escaped, but that he thought that they were thoroughly demoralized and would surrender. Thereupon Ignosi, after taking counsel with us, sent forward heralds to each gate, ordering the defenders to open, and promising on his royal word life and forgiveness to every soldier who laid down his arms. The message was not without its effect. Presently, amid the shouts and jeers of the buffaloes, the bridge was dropped across the fosse, and the gates upon the further side flung open. Taking due precautions against treachery, we marched on into the town. All along the roadways stood dejected warriors, their heads drooping, and their shields and spears at their feet, who, as Ignosi passed, saluted him as king. On we marched, straight to Twala's crawl. When we reached the great space, where a day or two previously we had seen the review and the witch-hunt, we found it deserted. No, not quite deserted, for there on the further side, in front of his hut, sat Twala himself, with but one attendant, Gagul. It was a melancholy sight to see him seated there, his battle-axe and shield by his side, his chin upon his mailed breast, with but one old crone for companion, and notwithstanding his cruelties and misdeeds, a pang of compassion shot through me as I saw him thus fallen from his high estate. Not a soldier of all his armies, not a courier of the hundreds who had cringed round him, nor even a solitary wife remained to share his fate or have the bitterness of his fall. Poor savage! He was learning the lesson that fate teaches to most who live long enough, that the eyes of mankind are blind to the discredited, and that he who is defenseless and fallen finds few friends and little mercy. Nor indeed in this case did he deserve any. Filing through the crawl gate, we marched straight across the open space to where the ex-king sat. When within about fifty yards the regiment was halted, and accompanied only by a small guard, we advanced towards him, Gagool reviling us bitterly as we came. As we drew near, Twala, for the first time, lifted up his plumed head, and fixed his one eye, which seemed to flash with suppressed fury, almost as brightly as the great diamond bound round his forehead, upon his successful rival, Ignosi. "'Hail, O king!' he said, with bitter mockery. "'Thou who hast eaten of my bread, "'and now by the aid of the white man's magic "'has reduced my regiments and defeated mine army. "'Hail! What fate hast thou for me, O king?' "'The fate thou gavest to my father, "'whose throne thou hast sat upon these many years,' "'was the stern answer. "'It is well. I will show thee how to die.' "'that thou mayest remember it against thine own time. "'See, the sun sinks in blood.' "'And he pointed with his red battle-axe "'towards the fiery orb now going down. "'It is well that my sun should sink with it. "'And now, O king, I am ready to die, "'but I crave the boon of the Kukuwana royal house "'to die fighting. "'Thou canst not refuse it, "'or even those cowards who fled today. "'will hold thee shamed.' "'Ignosi answered, "'It is granted, 
Choose. With whom wilt thou fight? Myself? I cannot fight with thee, for the king fights not, except in war. Twala's somber eye ran up and down our ranks, and I felt, as for a moment it rested on myself, that the position had developed a new horror. What if he chose to begin by fighting me? What chance should I have against a desperate savage six foot five inches high, and broad in proportion? I might as well commit suicide at once. Hastily I made up my mind to decline the combat, even if I were hooted out of Kukawana land as a consequence. It is, I think, better to be hooted than to be quartered with a battle-axe. Presently Twala spoke. Inkubu, what sayest thou? Shalt we end what we began today, or shall I call thee coward, white, even to the liver? Nay, interposed Ignosi hastily, thou shalt not fight with Inkubu. Not if he is afraid, said Twala. Unfortunately, Sir Henry understood this remark, and the blood flamed up to his cheeks. I will fight him, he said. He shall see if I'm afraid. For God's sake, I entreated, don't risk your life against that of a desperate man. Anybody who saw you today will know that you're not a coward. I will fight him, was the sullen answer. No living man shall call me a coward. I am ready now. And he stepped forward and lifted his axe. I wrung my hands over this absurd piece of quicksodism. But if he was determined on fighting, of course, I could not stop him. Fight not, my white brother said Ignosi, laying his hand affectionately on Sir Henry's arm. Thou hast fought enough, and if aught befell thee at his hands, it would cut my heart to twain. I will fight, Ignosi, was Sir Henry's answer. It is well, Inkubu, thou art a brave man. It will be a good fight. The ex-king laughed savagely, and stepped forward and faced Curtis. For a moment they stood thus, and the setting sun caught their stalwart frames and clothed them both in fire. They were a well-matched pair. Then they began to circle round each other, their battle axes raised. Suddenly Sir Henry sprang forward and struck a fearful blow at Twala, who stepped to one side. So heavy was the stroke that the striker half overbalanced himself, a circumstance of which his antagonist took a prompt advantage. Circling his heavy battle axe round his head, Twala brought it down with tremendous force. My heart jumped into my mouth. I thought that the affair was already finished. But no, with a quick upward movement of the left arm, Sir Henry interposed his shield between himself and the axe, with the result that its outer edge was shorn clean off, the axe falling on his left shoulder, but not heavily enough to do any serious damage. In another second, Sir Henry got in another blow which was also received by Twala upon his shield. Then followed blow upon blow, which were in turn either received upon the shield or avoided. The excitement grew intense. The regiment which was watching the encounter forgot its discipline and drawing near, shouted and groaned at every stroke. Just at this time too, Good, who had been laid upon the ground by me, recovered from his faint and sitting up perceived what was going on. In an instant he was up 
and catching hold of my arm, hopped about from place to place on one leg, dragging me after him, yelling out encouragement to Sir Henry. "'Go it, old fellow!' he hallowed. "'That was a good one. Give it to him amidships!' And so on went good. Presently Sir Henry, having caught a fresh stroke upon his shield, hit out with all his force. The stroke cut through Twala's shield and through the tough chain armor behind it, gashing him in the shoulder. With a yell of pain and fury, Twala returned the stroke with interest, and such was his strength, shore right through the rhinoceros's horn handle of his antagonist's battle axe, strengthened as it was with bands of steel, wounding Curtis in the face. A cry of dismay rose from the buffaloes as our hero's broad axe head fell to the ground, and Twala, again raising his weapon, flew at him with a shout. I shut my eyes. When I opened them again, it was to see Sir Henry's shield lying on the ground, and Sir Henry himself with his great arms twined round Twala's middle. To and fro they swung, hugging each other like bears, straining with all their mighty muscles for dear life and dearer honor. With a supreme effort, Twala swung the Englishman clean off his feet, and down they came together, rolling over and over on the lime paving, Twala striking out at Curtis's head with the battle axe, and Sir Henry trying to drive the tola he had drawn from his belt through Twala's armor. It was a mighty struggle, and an awful thing to see. Get his axe! yelled Good, and perhaps our champion heard him. At any rate, dropping the tola, he made a grab at the axe, which was fastened to Twala's wrist by a strip of buffalo hide. And still rolling over and over, they fought for it like wildcats, drawing their breath in heavy gasps. Suddenly the hide string burst, and then, with a great effort, Sir Henry freed himself, the weapon remaining in his grasp. Another second, and he was up on his feet, the red blood streaming from the wound in his face. And so was Twala. Drawing the heavy toll up from his belt, he staggered straight at Curtis and struck him upon the breast. The blow came home true and strong, but whoever it was that made the chain armor understood his art, for it withstood the steel. Again Twala struck out with a savage yell, and again the heavy knife rebounded, and Sir Henry went staggering back. Once more Twala came on, and as he came, our great Englishman gathered himself together, and swinging the heavy axe round his head, hit him with all his force. There was a shriek of excitement from a thousand throats, and behold, Twala's head seemed to spring from his shoulders, and then fell and came rolling and bounding along the ground towards Ignosi, stopping just at his feet. For a second, the corpse stood upright, the blood spouting in fountains from the severed arteries. Then, with a dull crash, it fell to the earth, and the gold torque from the neck went rolling away across the pavement. As it did so, Sir Henry, overpowered by faintness and loss of blood, fell heavily across it. In a second he was lifted up, and eager hands were pouring water on his face. Another minute, and the great gray eyes opened wide. He was not dead. Then I, just as the sun sank, stepping to where Twala's head lay in the dust, unloosed the diamond from the dead brows and handed it to Ignosi. Take it, I said. Ignosi bound the diadem upon his brows, and then advancing, placed his foot upon the broad chest of his headless foe, and broke out into a chant 
or rather a peon of victory, so beautiful and yet so utterly savage that I despair of being able to give an adequate idea of it. I once heard a scholar with a fine voice read aloud from the Greek poet Homer, and I remembered that the sound of the rolling lines seemed to make my blood stand still. Ignosi's chant, uttered as it was in a language as beautiful and sonorous as old Greek, produced exactly the same effect on me, although I was exhausted with toil and many emotions. Now, he began, now is our rebellion swallowed up in victory and our evil doing justified by strength. In the morning the oppressors rose up and shook themselves. They bound on their plumes and made them ready for war. They rose up and grasped their spears. The soldiers called to the captains, Come, lead us. And the captains cried to the king, Direct thou the battle. They rose up in their pride, twenty thousand men, and yet a twenty thousand. Their plumes covered the earth as the plumes of bird cover her nest. They shook their spears and shouted. Yes, they hurled their spears into the sunlight. They lusted for the battle and were glad. They came up against me. Their strong ones came running swiftly to crush me. They cried, Ha! He is the one. He is as one already dead. Then breathed I on them, and my breath was as the breath of a storm, and lo, they were not. My lightnings pierced them. I licked up their strength with the lightning of my spears. I shook them to the earth with the thunder of my shouting. They broke, they scattered, they were gone as the mists of the morning. They are food for the crows and the foxes, and the place of battle is fat with their blood. Where are the mighty ones who rose up in the morning? Where are the proud ones who tossed their plumes and cried, He is as one already dead. They bow their heads, but not in sleep. They are stretched out, but not in sleep. They are forgotten. They have gone into the blackness and shall not return. Yes, others shall lead away their wives, and their children shall remember them no more. And I, I, the king, like an eagle, have I found my eyrie. Behold, for have I wandered in the night time, yet have I returned to my little ones at the daybreak. Creep ye under the shadow of my wings, O people, and I will comfort ye, and ye shall not be dismayed. Now is the good time, the time of spoil. Mine are the cattle in the valleys, the virgins in the crawls are mine also. The winter is overpast, the summer is at hand. Now shall evil cover up her face, and prosperity shall bloom in the land like a lily. Rejoice, rejoice, my people. Let all the land rejoice, in that the tyranny is trodden down, in that I am the king. He paused, and out of the gathering gloom there came back the deep reply. Thou art the king. Thus it was that my prophecy to the herald came true, and within the forty-eight hours Twala's headless corpse was stiffening at Twala's gate.